Hello and welcome to our Transformational Leadership Podcast. I am your hostess, the hostess with the mostess. <laughs> My name is Nicole Demonsenis. Uh, I'm up, as many of you know, on Instagram at figurechick911. My YouTube channel also figurechick911. If you're not already following, I encourage you to do so. You get daily leadership pearls, you get nutrition stuff, you get motivation, inspiration, education, all that. So let's dive right into today's content. I have some great stuff for you. We're continuing on on a topic that I firmly believe unequivocally changes your life, your family's life, your workplace life, everything. And that's this. It's commanding your emotionality. So there's a couple podcasts which we did prior to this one. If you have not listened to those, I do recommend that you go back and listen to those before this one, simply because there's some some things which we discussed, which we're pulling into today's podcast. But I mean, if you're here, welcome. I'm glad to have you. <laughs> Just be certain, you know, that you get the benefit of all of the material and you don't, you know, cut yourself short and rob yourself of some really powerful tools which can help you to be that best leader, whether this is personal or professional space that you're operating in. Okay, so here's what it looks like when you're commanding your emotionality. Um, a lot of you have asked, this is how this whole thing even started. Let me just even, let's go there. Okay, I am right now a business owner. However, I actually had in my previous life <laughs> an entire career as a registered nurse functioning mostly in an emergency capacity as emergency room, and that's medical patients, that's pediatric patients, it's trauma patients. I flew on a helicopter for a period of time. And so when you get to operate in that space, there's a big distinction between responding to somebody else's emergency and reacting to it. So part of the strength of character that a lot of people have said to me, like how I ended up on this podcast was that towards the end of my nursing career, I had been hired or recruited for jobs, not simply because of nursing clinical skill, as in my abilities to put in IVs or I don't listen to lung sounds or something like that. It was actually for my leadership skills and leadership now is coming to the forefront and you can actually go to school and you can get various degrees in it. And my training as a leader started actually during childhood and I, I moved through it definitely as a registered nurse. And in the later aspects of my years as a nurse, I found there was like a pattern that was um, occurring here is that either if I was being recruited and I had like a 20 year investment in this industry. So this was not just like, oh, she's just this nurse. Everybody wants her. Like I put in some serious time. I had a very expansive network. I was very intentional about creating that it, it was a career and knowing people and building both my personal and professional brand and my reputation, all of the, everything was taken care of. Like I took care of the whole entire thing and made sure that I was in the right places to get the most amount of experience so that I could become <laughs> the best provider, not just the best nurse or the best flight nurse, but it was the best provider. And in order to do that, 
you also not only do you have to have clinical skill, clinical knowledge, expertise, a lot of it is your character. How do you negotiate different situations, especially when we are literally talking about the difference between life and death? Okay, so how, how I ended up here was that people started recruiting or hiring me because either their emergency rooms were a total disaster, uh, they lacked leadership, and they were looking for somebody to assist them with that, either in the function of a charge nurse or, or some sort of supervisory thing, um, which I never took, uh, or... The, their organization was in a huge amount of turmoil and turnover as we saw in the healthcare system over the past like 10 years. You know, healthcare has always been like a growing beast, but once you start injecting the power of insurance companies, the influence of pharm, uh, pharmacology from drug companies, from the influence of socialism, from the expectations of the people, once we had business come in there and they were trying to turn hospitals into hotels, it was like so much. And there was a whole bunch of people who came into at least the nursing industry because they learned that it was a very stable and reliable paycheck. You were actually compensated pretty well based on what it was that you were doing. Um, and they went in there leading with finance as their leading goal, and they sucked. I don't even know how they made it through nursing school, but the caliber of nurse that we saw enter, it was horrific. And they had zero, zero like life skills. They couldn't manage any element of conflict, or they couldn't apply what was from the book into real life. And they were just trying to hyperanalyze anything without ever examining the patient and you know putting their hands to do physical assessment on on the patient and there was this huge gap it was so freaking frustrating and it was felt at all levels it was felt on the level of the staff nurse it was felt by the patients and my my family was talking about how these nurses were in different facilities it was felt by management it was insanity all over the place and so you start to wonder after you've been in an industry for a period of time and you start to see trends who's actually recruiting me and why okay <laughs> it was hands down because of what is essentially my high level of leadership skill and a lot of the undercrust of that is maintaining grace under pressure so how does that come about? Well, you know, hands down, if you're working in an emergency space, let's just face it, especially in the ER where I chose to keep myself, I chose to keep myself there because of the magnitude of shit that I would see every single day. Again, my goal was to become a flight nurse and to be the best practitioner. So that means I had to be ready to respond to any individual's emergency, whether we're talking a medical emergency, a trauma emergency, whether this is a pregnant lady, this is a, a two-week-old, this is a 99-year-old who has 99% you know, burns on their body, this is heart attack, blah, 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 whatever it is, I've got to be ready to respond. And by me, I mean also with my, my crew, we run a nurse uh, medic configuration with our pilot. And no matter how many things were wrong with them, so usually if they had a heart attack, maybe then they were also having a, a flare up of their asthma and they were bleeding inside at the same time, or there was always, always multiple things that were wrong with these people. And then oftentimes we actually did what was called a hospital to hospital transfer. A lot of people think, and I'm, I'm speaking in regards to flight nursing right now, a lot of people think that helicopter programs 
are all about car accidents. And that's actually not, to, to the best of my knowledge, most helicopter programs do not run most of their calls on accidents. That's part of our business. But usually what happens is we're called to shorten a transportation time. If there's, let's say it takes an ambulance a half an hour to drive from where they pick somebody up complaining of chest pain or something to the nearest hospital that can help them, maybe that's a 30 minute drive. If they call us in, it shaves that transport time down to like 11 minutes. That's awesome. So we're used for expeditious transport, but also once somebody goes to one particular hospital and they're being taken care of or they had surgery or they're up in ICU, whatever, sometimes the patient is too sick to stay in that hospital and they have to be transferred to let's say a university level hospital, a hospital who has more resources in physicians and nursing care and equipment and stuff like that to deal with this level of injury or illness that they have. So when you're in that capacity, you see stuff that people, they don't even write about in medical journals. You just like, nothing, after a while, nothing surprises you. You see all kinds of crazy things. But when you're in that role, you're there to make the situation better. Okay, so for me, that's always been the expectation is there's not freak out time for me. I'm here to make the situation better. I'm not just here to drive them or fly them from point A to point B. I'm here to get them where they are and help them somehow become better. Whether they're a cardiac patient and they are on death's door, my job is to implement the standing orders that we have and work with my partner and transport this person and hopefully deliver them to the next place in somewhat of a better state than when we found them or when we picked them up, not found them. Okay, and that's how it was. But in order for this to happen, I mean, you have to have your SHIT together. You have to come to the table ready with your knowledge. You have to have some sort of a system. You have to be very deliberate about the moves that you're going to be making. There's no wishy-washy. This is just very abrupt. This is very um, rapid-fire decision-making. And at the same time, you also have to be letting the other end of your brain travel at least like 20 minutes down the road. What happens once we move this person from the hospital into the back of the aircraft and get up in the sky? Well, it's dark up there if this is nighttime. We can't really hear because the helicopter's so loud we have uh, um, ear protection on. We're not allowed to talk because there's a lot of radio chatter. So we can't talk on the comms, take up you know the radio space because we need to be communicating with the towers there's like flight nursing is like its thing onto its own but I want to pull back like all that that's all of my training so I had it on the ground I had that up in the air and that's you know what brought me here well as I decided to leave nursing from the get nursing was never meant I say this it was never meant to be a long-term strategy Um, But I never knew what the next thing was going to be that I was going to do. So I've done quite a few different things. I I did uh, some food service for a while and I did some um, like nutrition coaching. I still operate in the capacity of muscular development coach. I love it. It's one of my strengths. It definitely builds into the leadership aspect of all the coaching that I do because your health is like, you know, the vehicle for your life and what you eat and how you work out totally impacts decisions that you make. So it all like works together. Well, 
after I jumped the boat and now I'm here, I'm building this Academy of Awesomeness, Transformation Gold Coaching and Training Academy. Here we are on this podcast. And I decided that, you know, looking back, there's still at that time during while I was a nurse and now there's people who are, what's the word? If they could like open up my brain and pull out, you know, pearls of wisdom, that's what they've always asked for me is how do you stay so calm? This is like the big one. How do you stay so calm all the time? And I even got an award. I was, I recently moved and I was packing up my stuff and found an award that I was given by the staff that, you know, able to stay calm in any situation. And it was me. And the other one that I got was um, who... It was for being organized, like who do you like to pick up an assignment after, and it was me. And that really impressed me, not because of the, not like impressed me like, oh, I'm impressed with myself. No, it, it made an impression on me like, wow, these, this is, maybe this is what I should be doing over here. But then the question was, was well, how do I do this? <laughs> How do you how do you make a scalable business model out of this? Should I? Is this something that should be free? So, you know, I was kind of like chewing on this for a long time. And then all of a sudden it was like this blanket, you know, peeled back. And I was like, you know what? However this, this rolls out, I would be faulty if I left this planet or went on my merry way and didn't somehow, you know, open up my mind and share those pearls that I learned along the way that can help you or help your your family or help your organization in some way. And so that's in a nutshell what got me here today. Now we're talking about commanding your emotionality and the last two podcasts that we did on this was talking about reasons why, obviously, and then giving you some how-to tactics on like the flow chart or like the algorithm thing that I use to determine whether or not something is an emergency. Because I find that when you're in a leadership role, you don't have a lot of wiggle room when it comes to how you choose to respond right? The leader is the person that you look to to get you through a rough time or continue moving a project forward from start to finish. And that's the role. So this could be, you know, happy times or critical sad times, however you choose to implement this. So today's example comes from, you know, some of my experiences, but whatever brought you here today, And this is our transformational leadership. This is, you know, organizational leadership. This is how you organize your family, whatever. Everybody's a leader at one time. And what I'm going to bring to the forefront here is an example of a literal life or death situation. But instead of you keeping it just in my example, what I'm going to invite you to do right now is I want you to think of a time. Maybe you're in it right now. Maybe you experienced it in the past and you're looking to do lessons learned. How do I do better in the future? You know somebody who's going through some stuff. However you want to apply this, okay? So my examples are never just relevant like, oh, she's all that. My examples, honest to God, are only to give you some sort of clarity on how how can you keep your shit together Get your shit together, all right, and keep it together so that you can actually maintain that strength. 
okay? Which is really, it's grace under pressure is what it is. It's not becoming stoic and hardened. It's not becoming unemotional or robotic-like. It actually is very much heart-led, but it doesn't allow you to get so caught up in your feels that you become ineffective, okay? It's focus on your mission. All right, ooh, there's a big piece. Focus on your mission. I'll remember that for future podcasts. All right, so here's the situation. Think about a situation which for you is like, ugh, it's like bottom of the bucket. This thing has died or is dying. This could be your business. This could be some project that you're working on. This could be your health and fitness. I mean, this could be your relationship, your marriage. This could be anything. This could be staff morale. This could be anything. Okay. And so here's what happened. This was a call that we went on. And if you have sensitive ears or you have young children, you know, please don't go into the space of applying this to the case of your children. This is a leadership instruction, not getting you all up in your parental fields. Okay. So snap back here, just receive the, the explanation as it is. Okay. So here's what happened. We were called, this was as a flight nurse. We were called for this baby who was at a hospital. She was about five or six weeks old. And all we were told is that she was sick and that she had to be transported from said hospital back to um, Loyola, which is where we were actually based out of. So she was too sick to stay at this small community hospital and she needed to come back to Loyola. She was going to go to intensive care unit. Now, one of the reasons why she couldn't stay at this little community hospital was because they did not have what we call inpatient pediatric services, meaning they didn't have pediatric units there. They didn't do pediatric care. They didn't deliver babies there. They didn't, they didn't do any of that stuff. So for the people who lived in the community, if that kid got sick, usually what they would do is they would bring their kid, their baby to the emergency room, receive treatment, and then either they would go home or if they needed to be admitted to a hospital, they would call us and then we would fly them to whatever hospital they were going to be admitted in. And we went there all the time. They were they were they were our frequent flyers like so it was just routine for us so when we landed we knew we my crew and I uh, so it's me uh, our flight medic and our pilot and the pilot did not do patient care pilot had his hands full literally in making sure that we remain safe up on the sky during you know landing and takeoff like the whole entire thing so he didn't do patient care uh, but we we work cohesively because you know we're equally as responsible for safety uh, to a certain degree so we are a team so we were called for this baby so we go to this hospital and we already know how to walk to the er like we land because we go to this ER all the time, we knew how to get there. And so as we land, um, we start walking towards the ER and there's usually a security officer who escorts you from the aircraft to the ER. And we saw this guy all the time. So, you know, we're kind of like laughing and joking. And as we go to the ER, he walks in a different way. And we didn't think too much about it because we knew where we were going. And he turns around, he's like, no, your patient got admitted. And we laughed and we were like, oh, ha ha ha, you know, the hospital, it doesn't have pediatric services, whatever. And he's like, no, seriously, she got admitted. And we kind of, I mean, this happened really, really fast. I'm just thinking about this out loud. So it takes longer. 
so we were thinking about this, like, <laughs> what? And he goes, no, she got admitted. So now, okay, you're expecting to go into a situation, all right? This was our perspective. We were going for this tiny little baby. We didn't even know what was wrong with her. Like, we were just told that she was sick and that she had to go from this hospital back to the other one, and she was sick enough where she was going to be working herself into an intensive care unit bed. So you know that she's sick you know, with, with due cause. Okay. So there's something really wrong with her. Okay. And now not only is she super sick, but somebody thought it was a good idea to admit her into the hospital that doesn't even do pediatric care. I don't know how it happened. I I know still that's exactly like who thought you get the look on your face, right? Like what I'm telling you, Sometimes the shit that goes down in healthcare, like you can't even make it up. Like who thought, seriously, who thought that was a good idea? What nurse, honest to God, let this happen? I mean, like where, <laughs> but if you're that person and you are entering what is obviously a critical situation, the baby is sick and sick babies don't have a lot of time. Like there's not a lot of time wiggle room that you have to delay care and transport. Okay, they just they don't have a whole lot to work with little babies. You know what I'm saying? They're like sick. And so you don't have time to get caught up in your feels and then go hunt down the person who's responsible and read them the riot act and get everybody up all upset because now the situation has already gone from bad to worse. Right. So we're moving like negative now in terms of, of how good of a situation this is. Right. So as we're walking down the hallway and we get to this kid's floor, as luck would have it, this baby's room was actually all the way at the end of the hallway. And again, I can't make this up. So as we're walking down, now I should tell you that myself and my partner and the pilot, we usually, <laughs> we usually are a laughing, joking crew. And what we usually would do is we would pretend like we would take on characters for the day. And we would just, you know, some days we were like the A-team. And so they always made me be B.A. Baracus. So I would always have to be talking like, forget B.A. Baracus, I'm not pity the fool. And that's just how we rolled. Like people in emergency stuff, like we've got whack sense of humors. But that's how we always rolled. Well, as we started walking down the hallway here, like there was no joking. Like where there was no smiles to be had because now we know that we're responding. Oh, here's those sirens. Don't you love it when you have like props that make your, your podcast just so much more effective? All right. So this is an emergency now. Ooh. Okay. So we're walking down the hallway towards this kid's room and I shit you not, excuse my language, as we're walking down, you know how when you go to a hospital, you, you always look in the rooms while you're walking to the person who, who you're going to go see. Like, and so we're looking in the rooms and I can't even make this up. There's old, we were on the geriatric floor an old people's floor. Like there were little grandmas sitting in the chair, you know, in the room and they've got like their blanket over their head, like this giant babushka. We were actually on a geriatric floor. So let me paint the situation again. Okay. We're called for the six week, week old baby. Okay. Who's so sick that she has to go to ICU she now got admitted to a hospital that doesn't even do pediatric care and she's on a geriatric floor with a bunch of like 80 and 90 year old like really old people and this is not even an intensive care unit this is a regular hospital floor and her room is all the way at the end like the farthest away from any nursing station that could possibly be 
I don't know who decided that was a good idea. I don't. But you as the leader, when you are walking into a situation which is literally deteriorating, like the more information that you're getting, the worse the freaking situation is. Do you have time to, to, to stop the press and just be like, what the F? Even though inside, like that little voice is like, I want to find the person who did this and freaking choke them because this is... this is beyond stupid. This is an embarrassment to, you know, to my people as fellow nurses. Like you just want to go and read them off the riot act, but you can't. Okay. You've got to maintain your composure because of your mission. You are there in my case to take care of this baby and take her from the situation wherever I found her, wherever we found her and make her better and get her to a better place right? It's the importance of having that mission. But in order to do that, to maintain that level of focus and the command of your emotionality, it requires a completely different end of you, even though the drums of piss-offedness of who was the asshole idiot who decided this was a good idea are clanging inside of your head, okay? When you feel that, you actually have to get quieter, Okay, and here's the reason why. I'm going to give you a little bit of science backing behind this and then we'll get back to our story, okay? When you enter a very stressful situation, part of what happens to you, not just limbic systems, we talked about that previous podcast, but what happens to you when you're under tremendous amounts of stress, it actually reduces your communication skills, your listening skills, your fine motor skills, and your critical and creative thinking skills. That's a fact, okay? When you go under stress, this is a very primal response that your body has. And this traces back to like caveman running away from T-Rex with a big head and like, oh, like the little hands is that caveman needed to get away from him. He didn't need to make sure that his body had enough oxygen and energy to perfuse his appendix. <laughs> I know you weren't expecting that, but that's that's the function of this. So when you get into that heightened level of stress, this is what we know is called fight or flight. Okay. Now there's actual like physical and chemical changes that happen inside of your body when you're under levels of stress. And legit what happens is that your body takes the blood from like your fingers and your toes and it shoves it, we call it shunting, but it just makes it go primarily to your brain, your heart and your lungs because those are the things that you need to keep you alive. Okay, so it takes blood away from your stomach, it takes blood away from your reproductive organs and it just sends things to the most important features just to get you, uh, keep you alive. Now with that comes the outspout effects. When you're under tremendous levels of stress, let me ask you a question. What happens to your peripheral vision? Does it get better or worse? Peripheral vision, what you see out the sides. 100% worse. You get what's called tunnel vision. That's where tunnel vision actually comes from. So your focus is increased, but only on one thing. You cannot see what's going on in the periphery. Okay? The next thing when you're under high levels of stress, think about this. How well do you hear soft-spoken flowery language people don't right when people are under stress you know how you see on tv somebody like smacks them across across the face don't do that um to get them to pay attention because they're caught up in that stress response 
okay? Now, when you are trying to process information, think about how easy it is for you uh, to do maybe math equations. If you're not a math person, when you're under stress, you totally fall apart, okay? How easy is it for you to figure out how to put a puzzle together if you're under stress? Okay, maybe that's not a good example. Think about this, people who are in the military, how often do they practice putting their weapon together, taking it apart, putting it together, taking it apart, putting it together? Because we know performance decreases when you're under stress. Okay, does this starting to make sense? Like nothing really works in your favor when you are under high levels of stress. Okay, fine motor skills go away. And also how effective of a communicator are you when you are under stress? And I don't care if this is verbal communication. I don't care this is how you respond via text or email, you know, in all capitals. And you're like, right? Because you're under stress, you're pissed off or whatever. Like the effects of stress impact you usually to the negative. All they do is preserve your life. They do nothing to, to assist you in your leadership role other than potentially like maybe increasing your level of focus. But it can be taken to the extreme if you allow yourself to succumb to the stress. Okay, so there's some physiology right behind there. And now you see why people do what they do. Okay, you see why you do what you do. You see why people do what they do. Automatically, now you have more information. You're already in a higher level of leadership role because now you can make the decision on how you're going to choose to respond. When you see people getting caught up in their stress, you're going to be able to stop it right away. You can be able to recognize it. Okay, so immediately right there, you have a key set of information, a key skill set on how to use just that piece of knowledge. How do you apply it? Power is, is not like knowledge is not power. It's applied knowledge. How do you apply it? There you go. Okay, now back to the situation. So we're, we're going to get this kid right now. You're I think by now, like your heart's pumping. Okay, so imagine you're us and now you're walking in towards where this baby's room is. This is the six week old that we're there because she's like sick and she's dying. She's got to go to ICU. So as we get towards the end of the hallway, this is what we see. We see there is a couple, clearly her parents, because they're like younger than all the other patients on the floor. So just by default, you know, they're clearly like the one and they're crying. So we know that that's the parents. However, all of the nurses who worked on the floor were standing with these parents crying too. Now you say, well, of course they would. This, this kid is sick. Yes. But my question is who's in the room taking care of the kid? That's what I'm asking. Okay. This thing is dying. This baby is sick. However you view this in terms of your own situation, who's in there tending to the business? Huh? Okay. Okay. We'll come back to that situation. So now we walk in and it was just customary with our flight configuration. They always allowed, you know, ladies first. They always allowed the nurse to go in first. And so it was me who went in first. And this is what I saw. Okay. Now standard hospital room, just picture it was not fancy. Okay. It was just, you know, like kind of before hotels became a thing at hospitals, just standard hospital room. So over to the left, there was the baby and she, she was in a crib. I don't even know where they got to this day. Like that's like outstanding question for me. Like where the hell did you get a crib if you don't even do pediatric care? So that probably tells you like how long it has been since they had kids in their hospital. So anyway, she's in this crib to my left. And then there were three people in the room, all of whom were physicians. 
Now, I'm gonna explain this to you, but this happened like in real time, this happened like in milliseconds, okay? And I learned who these people were later. So the one, um, there was one doctor there who was an anesthesiologist. You know, the guy or girl, they put you to sleep before surgery, they stick the breathing tube down your throat. So that's them, him. He had the breathing tube down this baby's throat. I don't know where he got it from, probably the emergency room, but it worked. I was really happy about that. And so he was, you know, doing that. Well, the other two doctors were actually um, geriatric doctors, meaning they went to school and they specialized in taking care of old people. Now, there are certain things about the human body which happen no matter how old you are, right? Every, everyone's got a heart and lungs and stuff like that. But I'm telling you, there are worlds and galaxies of difference between taking care of not just a pediatric patient, but an infant, like a newborn, and a 90-year-old person. Okay? So these two are in the room because, well, they're the only doctors around. Okay, one of the guys, he's been a geriatrician for the better part of 20 years, and another girl, she was young. And the reason why they pulled her in the room was because of all the other doctors, she had the least amount of time between when she handled pediatrics as a, a student as a, and a resident and when she became an attending. So what were they doing? They were actually building a team because they now had this patient that they were probably not expecting, okay? Imagine what it was like for them. They take care of old people on purpose at a hospital that does not take care of children, okay? So they vol like voluntarily applied there and worked there on purpose because they're not up all in peace. You know what I'm saying? They're not up in the care of kids. So they're trying to do the best that they know how to do, but can you imagine their level of stress? I mean, really. If you are, and then you're a doctor on top of it and you're expected to know what to do all the time, but you honestly, like, if you don't use it, you lose it. I don't care what you go to school for. That's how it is. Think of how many things in school you learned. And if you didn't practice it, maybe a foreign language or something like that, you totally lose it. Same thing as, you know, any professional would be, okay? So training is obviously a responsibility when you're functioning in a capacity, you know, like we are. We have to make sure that we are always around sick people so that we don't lose, you know, our edge and our ability to, to make the situation better. So here's what it looked like though, okay? So I looked at this baby and I'm not even kidding you. Picture, um, she was purple. And when I say purple, I mean like if you were to open up the crayon box, not kind of purple, not lavender. I'm talking like the, the color purple, the actual color of the crayon purple, like that, like grape jelly purple, like darker than that even. That's how color, like her skin was that color from head to toe. And I do not care, like maybe you have never seen children who are that sick before. I'm just going to be, I'll be the voice of reason for you and instruction and tell you that <clears throat> it doesn't matter if you are a light skinned baby or if you are dark skinned and like your dark skin is almost the color black when you are walking around as a normal person anyway, no person should look purple. Like no person should look like that. That's abnormal, okay? So clearly, without even touching her, you know that <laughs> this is not good, okay? Now, this is what was going on. 
The doctor who had the breathing tube down this baby's throat, the anesthesiologist, was doing what he should do, and that was helping her breathe. So he's squeezing that bag thing, okay? And that was helping her breathe. However, the doctor who had been the geriatrician for the better part of 20 years had an ultrasound machine in his hand, you know, like you do for pregnant ladies, so you can see the baby swimming around in there. He had that on her, and you can use ultrasound for a bunch of different things. You can use it to um, watch blood flow. Uh, You can use it to see, you know, what's moving inside. So you can actually do it, like use it to see, like, does the heart actually beat? Okay. So if you've ever had heart studies, you know, they do ultrasound Dopplers and stuff. That's what we look at. So he was doing, this is what he said. I'm doing an ultrasound because I, of her heart, because I can't feel a pulse. Okay, so now when when babies turn purple like that, like you want to be sure that you know that you're breathing for them. If they're not breathing, you got to make sure if the heart's not beating that you're doing what we call CPR. You're like pushing on their chest to get the blood to slosh around so that they, you know, come back to life. Well, he was doing this ultrasound because he couldn't feel a pulse. Now I'm going to tell you, well, I don't care what class of CPR you take. If you don't feel a pulse, you do CPR. Like that's if this, then this. It's literally that simple. However, it's not because this was special case. It's not because he had specialized knowledge. What happened was the dude was freaked out of his fucking mind and was second guessing himself that this baby doesn't have a pulse, but she's a little bit chubby because she's a little Hispanic baby. And so maybe it's just me that I can't feel the pulse. And I just got to see if this is, if can I actually believe what I'm seeing or feeling or not feeling? Okay. Now, when you are in a heightened situation, have you ever been so stressed where you like almost hear your own pulse in your own ears? (laughs) So can you imagine this poor doctor, you know, now you're trying to feel a pulse on this chubby little baby and perhaps you can't because the sound of your own pulse in your ears competes with your ability to feel. Plus, you don't have a lot of blood flow in your fingers. Why? Because the blood is being sent to your brain, into your lungs, into your heart. Like, nothing works well for you. So nobody was doing compression CPR in this baby. Well, now you're us, okay? So do we have time <laughs> to say, you guys are a bunch of stupid MFers. No, what happens? Like you feel compassion for these people, but clearly we, I, I, to this day, I have never seen a person as purple as that baby was for real. I, I had never seen it up to that point. I, that honest to God, that was the most purplest person I had ever seen in my life, but you don't have time. I don't know how long can somebody stay that purple until like they're irreversible. We can't bring this kid back anymore. Do you see what I'm saying? So when you're entering those stressful situations, even though you're pissed off that she got admitted, you're pissed off that she's not in ICU, you're pissed off that nobody's doing CPR, like you have, and then you're pissed off that there's no nurses in the room. They're all outside crying because they're checked out emotionally. Like you have nothing working in your favor except your ability to exert that courage in what clearly is a lot of people's worst day of their life, but what is essentially like a really scary situation and you don't have the help that you actually would give you like best case scenario. 
So I'm going to tell you this. So this is not meant to be disrespectful to my partner, Stevie. If there's ever a partner to have on that day, it was definitely him. Love that guy. Steve, if you're listening, you know how much I love you. Rock and roll hands. Um, but what I'm telling you is that when you're looking to resuscitate somebody, it's a team effort. It's not one person. Okay, because one person's got to be, you know, giving the oxygen. Another person does the compressions. Another person ideally would be giving medications, but sometimes you don't have as much help or the help that you require. You have to do with what you're given at that time. And if we were, we, Steve and I, were to have flipped out and either gotten caught up emotionally or pissed off or allowed that stress to take over us how would we be able to do math calculations how would we know how much drugs to give this kid because there's drugs that you have to give somebody who doesn't have a pulse and it helps to get their their heart started back up again okay or if they need um, glucose you know whatever whatever the case may be is you have to be able to do mathematical calculation and you're doing it with decimals because this is a this is a baby she's only five six weeks old do you see what I'm saying? So welcome into our world like this is happening in the brink. And yes, you've had a lot of training, but still it doesn't change the fact that usually when you see kids who are this sick in the past, I had always had some semblance of a team. I'd either been in the emergency room with a group of people or when you go to get patients from other facilities, usually the nursing staff at that facility is still in the room and you take over the leadership of that of that call, but you're able to form a team and delegate responsibilities and that was not the case so i got this doctor standing here he's not doing he's doing ultrasound i got this other one over here this other girl's in the back and so what had to happen was a very quick and effective mode of communication to actually take over the situation and not kind of change what was being done i mean that freaking thing had to be picked up and put on a brand new track so sometimes when you're communicating underneath like a tremendous amount of stress, you're not going to be able to explain rationale. You're gonna have to actually butt your way right up into that project and literally take it over. And that's what I did. He was doing his thing and I mean the look of fear in this guy's eyes. I mean this this stands out for me as one of those one of those calls that will forever like you know, holy shit, like this, <laughs> this is pretty freaking bad over here, that what I did was I stepped in front of him, I pushed, like I put my hands underneath where he had that ultrasound tool, I started doing the compressions and I said, we have it from here, sir. So it wasn't that I yelled at him like, you stupid asshole, get the fuck out of my way. I didn't say that he's not going to hear it. He's so, when you're a leader, part of your job is to actually rapid fire triage who is working with you. Whose attention do you have? Who is coachable? Who is teachable? Who can do simple tasks? Like you start like formulating your team and you're, you're allocating your resources like lightning quick and you cannot spend a whole lot of time cajoling or twisting and trying to get people to move up a mountain with you when the situation at hand is of like major severity and gravity. Does that make sense? 
Now, your example, where you are or where you have been, may not be that life or death, okay? Chances are, maybe this is not a, is somebody dying? Yes, okay, maybe that's, that's not where you are. But what I'm saying is, is the relationship dying? Yes or no? Has your, has your financial situation, you know, been dying? Yes or no? Is your organization, your team's winning this? You know, you put this in your own context of how you want to apply it. But underneath those heightened times of stress, like there's always going to be shit. There's going to be shit that you walk into that you have zero control over. There's like seasons that come to pass, right? Like wintertime. If you live in Chicago, man, like winter seems like it lasts forever. But we know that once the leaves start to change in the summertime, (laughs) it's fall. And then it's like it's fast winter. Like it always follows. Like you know it. But then you know spring is going to come. So it's never, is there going to be a problem? Is there going to be a conflict? Is there going to be a challenge? Is there going to be an obstacle? Absolutely. There's ebbs and flows in everything. There's ebbs and flows in the economy. Like there's ebbs and flows in how the tide comes in and out, you know, uh, at at the ocean side. Like you just know that that's how it's going to be. It's how you choose to respond to it. Does that make sense? It's, it's always about you. And so when you're grooming this skill of communicating or commanding rather your emotionality, it is just that. It's a groomed skill. I don't know if anybody comes out of the JJ. <laughs> yeah, I said it again. If anyone comes out of the JJ with that mild of temperance. I'm not sure. Maybe. I, I just... I I can't even tell you. I mean, usually command of emotionality and the ability to have courage in what is a very fearful situation. You know, some people, when they get under stress, it's almost like they have a meltdown and they can't move anymore. They're frozen in fear. There's a big distinction between feeling that stress and being able to work under it effectively for the better outcome and, you know, and attainment of your, of your mission. And when you have a meltdown and, and you just either retreat or you are virtually non-functional. Okay. Your goal as the leader is to be that beacon, that guiding light so that as the situation diffuses, as all situations do, you're going to acquire more resources or you may have to actually leave that particular environment, you know, go to a different, you know, take your, your party with you and go someplace else where there's going to be a stronger base of individuals who will be able to assist you in, in your, in your project or whatever it is that you're doing. Does that make sense? So what I'm saying to you, it's, it's command of your emotionality. It's being very, very, very mission driven. What am I here for? There's a lot of things that are always going to distract you. You know, it would have been very easy for us to stop with that family, with those parents in the hallway and give them a big hug and say, you know, we're really sorry that your kid is in a bad way and, and get caught up in that emotionality. But why were we there? We were the ones who were called. We were the ones who were assigned to that baby to make sure that whatever was wrong, we corrected and that we took her to a better place. Does that make sense? 
And it's the same thing with wherever you are assigned as a leader. I firmly believe like now at this point in my life, I didn't think about it going through it. I knew that we were just told, you know, we were to go different places, but I now know it was an assignment. Why? Because now I'm using it for a much greater cause, something that has, you know, affects, you know, way beyond me is that you can pull this information away and you can use it to your own benefit. Yeah, my examples are usually extreme and it probably gives you second thoughts about the medical, like the healthcare situation sometimes. But with all, you know, due respect, you know, please take away those pearls on what it is that you're dealing with. You know, you can definitely view it through the lens of, I mean, is my situation as perilous as a parent whose baby is that purple? Yes or no, right? And is this a relationship situation? Do I have a workable person on the other end? Is that person so stressed out that they can't even communicate with me anymore? Like the role of leadership, it's like a full contact sport because it requires you to be that beacon and to always have on your active listening hat so that it's not just the spoken word, it's what's not said. It's what's behind the words. It's people's body language. It's what you see in their eyes. It's how they hold their chest. Are they, you know, puffing up? Are they sweating? Are, are they not able to make eye contact with you? Is anybody dying? I mean, you're going through and you're able to like get the quick lay of the land so that you can come in there and implement some level of order and really what is a vision and, and all the goals that you need to improve a particular situation when something is not working well. But you have to have the right people with you in order to do it. That's the other flip of the coin is that if you're facing a lot of conflict, now if I didn't have a stellar partner like Stevie, and you know what, we didn't have anybody on our crew who was you know, a, a slack ass. Every We worked really well together. We had excellent, excellent practitioners like through and through. So, I mean, it was a non-issue by the time you get to that level. But clearly, like you have to have the workable people with you. Otherwise, you still have to command the ship. But everybody who you lead, it's like it's kind of like negotiations in a way. You know when you negotiate every they always say the most sure person always wins. That that's a rule. It's not like a, it's actually a statement. That's that's the thing. The most sure person always wins in negotiation. Okay? So when you take that stance that I'm here, okay? I've been assigned here. Maybe I've worked my way up to this point. I have my shit together. I, I have worked my way to be here. And now guess what? It's showtime, baby. And we do not have time to waste time. We're here and we're moving this ship onto a new track. But people read your energy. They read whether or not you are fearful. And those people are going to be looking to you to guide that ship or that project or that relationship or whatever the team, whatever it is, because that's why you're in that role to begin with. It's not just what you know. It's not just the skills, you know, the tactical skills that you have. It's who you are as an individual, as a leader that qualifies you to be put in positions, even though you may have not ever had the experience of being in that exact position before. And that's how the process of growth goes on.
okay? So as you are going about your day, okay, you can 100% change the situation at hand, okay? And just, you know, as an FYI, like the baby survivor resuscitation, for those of you who want to know, and we transported her to the other, um, to Loyola, and then it was deemed she needed a heart transplant. So she got transferred to another hospital downtown, and I don't know whatever happened to her after that. But the point of the story is, whatever that gravity of the situation is, somebody has to be the leader, and it always starts with you. You do not have time to waste your time in throwing more gasoline onto a fire, even though you want to, okay? You've got to remain very committed to what your mission is whatever it is. You've got to learn how to identify people who are way more stressed out than you. You've got to step up into your role as the leader. And as soon as you embody and embrace that, I guarantee you, you're not going to have to talk a lot. The people will look to you and you can simply move about your space with hand signals or showing them what to do and that actually diffuses their stress. And now all of a sudden, some of the people who were emotionally checked out now have that security that somebody who knows what to do is there. Even though you may be shaking inside, it's still, you know, with courage, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to act despite the fear. Do you see what I'm saying? It's just how you choose to channel it. So you hear that word a lot with me. It's how you choose to channel it, okay? And remember, you are there because you have graduated yourself to that actual level, okay? Now, perhaps that's not you. Perhaps you're in the situation where you're discharged emotionally uh, out of commission because the stress has overwhelmed you, okay? Then your job is how does that person do that? All right, I just explained to you, number one thing about the nervous system. All right, when you get under stress, those physical things happen to you and you may not be ready to do it. So here is one strategy for you to help you get up out of your feels and to kind of reverse some of those effects of tunnel vision and uh, motor control, fine motor control loss, you know, shitty communication skills, and that's the power of your breath. So when you are at those heightened times of maximal stress, just the simple activity of five deep, slow breaths in and out of your nose physiologically switches you from point of maximal stress overload and it actually causes, it's like a braking mechanism on that fight or flight thing, if you will. It actually switches you over into the other end of your nervous system, which is conveniently called feed or breed because it starts to redirect the blood back towards your stomach, back towards your reproductive organs, you know, back towards your fingers and your toes and, you know, your appendix. Um, And it it gives you that sense of of, um, mental clarity and, and mental calm. So there's actual strategy that you can use in that heightened period of stress. I mean, it only takes, you know, five to 10 seconds. If that's what you have to do to get your shit together, to be able to manage a situation and and take command of it, then, you know, by all means do it. It's far better, but you have to be able to recognize it. You've got to be able to recognize when you find yourself, you know, drifting off of of the thing, you have to literally like put a stop sign up in front of your face, command yourself to stop 
so that you can take those breaths, get your shit together, and then re-enter the game as, you know, a strong teammate. Does that make sense? All right. So hope you found value with that. Please, if you have friends who could value from any of this information, okay, these podcasts are, are free. Um, we are growing our following completely organically. I don't run, you know, I don't buy followers on any social media thing. It's just via your word of mouth. You know, we can hear this podcast. We're here up on Anchor primarily, but we're up on Spotify, on Apple, on Google as well. And I believe on all of them, it should be through Transformation Gold Coaching and Training Academy. So please send them on over. And if you have any specific questions, I forgot about this. We have this feature on here. If you have specific questions, that you would like to have answered, please, by all means, figure out how to do that. (laughs) I haven't explored that on Anchor, so that's going to be the next thing for me to figure out. Drop your questions, okay, and then let's get your questions answered, okay? This is how we're going to be making the world a better place. This is how we're going to be pumping out, you know, better people into society. This is how we continue to grow and evolve and, you know, do what it is that we're supposed to be doing on this planet. Okay? So have a wonderful day. We will catch you on next time's podcast. Bye.